WBNE. Hello from elsewhere, I'm Valerie. And I'm Casey. And welcome to the podcast where we explore characters, themes, and symbolism in pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from the writer's room for a network TV comedy. Because today we're discussing found family in the works of Michael Shore. Hey, Val. How's it going, Casey? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Do you have an all-important question for me? I do. This one comes from our one of our wonderful patrons, Allie, and she asks, maybe we need some background here. We're talking about, I guess we said that in the intro, huh? Yeah. So we're talking about the groups of... TV shows? TV shows. <laughs> Guys. Maybe maybe you need some more background about your brain, <laughs> about your brain today. Let's go back even further. Today has been weird. I keep blaming everything on being super pregnant. My brain just feels fuzzy all the time. Um, I went to hard boil egg, like boil some eggs yesterday, and I cracked the eggs into the pot instead of just like setting them in the pot. And then I was like, what am I doing? I just need to set them in the pot to boil them with water. Anyways, things like that have been happening a lot to me. So if this podcast episode by extension is fuzzy, that's why. Just blame it on the pregnancy mm-hmm. brain. I have no excuse, but I might be fuzzy too. Who knows? <laughs> Probably rubs off on you. <laughs> but yes, today we're talking about found family in the works of Michael Shore, which means The Office and Parks and Rec and Brooklyn, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Nine-Nine and, the, and good place. the Good Place. So with that in mind, what Here's is your Here's our question, question? from Allie. Yeah. Which character from a Michael Schur show would you want in your found family? Don't say cheaty. Don't say cheaty. Don't say cheaty. I always say <laughs> cheaty, so I'm like thinking. Um, no, actually, I'm going to say Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec. Because I think he and I would get along well. I feel like you'd be good roommates. Mm-hmm. Like, similar interests, and you're both clean, and yeah. I don't think you would get on each other's nerves too much. I don't think so. We might get into fun, nerdy debates, but in a respectful sort of way. I also think he gave up way too easily on his stop motion video. You're going to encourage and him to pick that back so up? So we're going to work on it together and there do some go. stop motion together, and I can really help him. Because... <laughs> I, I don't see I don't see stop motion as a sign of depression. Um, maybe maybe that's a hot take, but <laughs> it is a time-consuming endeavor. That is for sure. Yeah. What is your answer? Which character would you have in your found family? Can I have Janet? I want Janet. I thought about saying Janet. Not only because of the whole she can answer any question, she can make things appear, but also she's just a very calming presence because mm. she's not a human, not a robot. Like She's not as emotionally charged as the other characters. So I feel like she would just be super useful and, and still fun to have around. Agreed. Well, there you have it. We talked about found families. All right. See ya. Oh, that's the end of the episode? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just kidding. We've got lots to talk about today. we got some things. we got some things to talk about. So we've discussed found family in... In, in general? It, we've discussed it in with like the big... I think we talked about it with the big four even. Star Wars, Could be. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Marvel, I believe. Anyways, we do have a, a previous found family episode. Um, go check it out. Clearly, I don't remember everything that's in that. Apparently, we need to re-listen. We thought it'd be fun to talk about it again, but in a in a different context. And yeah, so here we are. We're going to talk about it in the works of Michael Shore, as mentioned. So maybe before we get a little bit deeper, let's just talk about each one and how they represent 
how they show found family in those individual shows. Does that sound all good? Sound yeah, okay? sounds great. I almost said okay and good at the same time. Does that sound all good? Sounds so all good. <laughs> oh good. So, so oh good. So The Office, the first one. Michael Shore was a writer and producer, so he wasn't a showrunner, but he was definitely heavily involved in The Office. So I feel like The Office is the most dysfunctional family of the four shows we're going to talk about. Yes, I agree. And I have some theories on why, but we'll get into oh, that later. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> I have no theories, so. <laughs> but yeah, they are pretty dysfunctional. I think because they're the most dysfunctional at the top, and so it and it trickles down. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they're the most. I don't know if it's the right word, but I'm going to use it. Is like clicky, you know? Like there's parts of the family that really don't get along with other parts of the family. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Like Jim and There's Pam more... are kind of the cool, right? quote unquote, normal ones. And so they kind of look down a little bit on some of the others. And then... I think because they're dysfunctional, that's why it's my least favorite of the four that we're talking about. Mm, I know no. people just love The Office, but Michael to me is just so cringeworthy like makes me so embarrassed for him that it's hard to watch well he's not your dad so that's good yes i think it's probably good that he's nobody's dad (laughs) we don't know he might eventually i can't remember he and um, them having kids i think i mean it sounds like they want kids Mm -hmm. it's been a long time since i've seen the finale so i can't even remember her name holly holly there we go holly's great holly is wonderful but I will say that they're, they grow more family-like as the series goes along. I agree. Even Jim and, and Dwight come to a kind of a mutual respect thing. Mm-hmm. And they tease more out of fun versus animosity. And Jim's a total bully to Dwight sometimes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I love Michael and Pam's relationship and how that grows and how they just grow closer together toward the end. And I, I find that really endearing. Yes, because at the beginning... He's the worst to Pam. Yeah. He's very much like, just do what I say and make these big things happen all of a sudden that are really unrealistic. and Right. He puts a lot of pressure on her and puts a lot of stuff on her plate that she should not have to do for her job. A lot yep. of stuff that has nothing to do with <laughs> her job or even his job. Exactly. Okay. Then the next one, Parks and Recreation. Michael Schreer was a co-creator on Parks and Rec. So how are they a found family? I feel like Leslie Nope is the glue that holds yeah. them all together. She is the one that has kind of pulled them all in, even though they're all so different and kind of created their family. Yeah, she's a she's a relationship genius in that way because it seems like it's it comes with ease to her, but she has sort of cultivated this space with all these people that do become a family. It's pretty impressive because without her... That wouldn't happen. We know Ron wouldn't make that happen. Right. Because even though Ron gets to a point where, like, I like Ron and April's relationship. Uh, Their relationship really grows. But I think without Leslie kind of pushing him to try new things and open up a little bit more, I don't think he would have ever even reached out to April, even though they're similar personalities. And same with, like, Donna and um, Tom, because they're both a little more selfish and so I think they find each other as friends eventually. But I think without Leslie Nope kind of bringing them together, I don't think that would have happened either. I also think that Parks and Rec, the found family there, is a little more healthy than The Office because they're willing to include outsiders a little bit more, you know? Like Andy and Anne, right off the bat, are outsiders. 
to, right. the, to the office environment. Even Mark, because he's kind and of a... Mark's kind of on the side, yeah. And then, like, Chris and um, Ben show up later. Um, so there's always... They're not quite so insular. And I think that makes them healthier and less dysfunctional also, and more real. Yes. See, compared to the office, I think that... Man, name just went right out of my head. Who? That Leslie, that, mm-hmm. you know, just the main character there. <laughs> I think it's that, okay, you're fuzzy. I think that compared to The Office, Leslie is, um, like, Leslie compared to Michael, if you're going to talk about kind of a family structure idea, that Leslie, they both have, like, big ideas, but Leslie can actually follow through and accomplish things on her big ideas, whereas yeah. Michael's always falls short after the idea phase. Um, so I think... Just her leadership personality is what creates their family and makes it more functional. I think because Michael wants to be seen as an ambitious, successful person, but Leslie wants to be an ambitious, successful person at what she does. Like her focus is the thing itself, whereas Michael is more focused on what people perceive him as. Yes. Leslie puts in the work. Michael's like, Pam, make this happen. Right. Because <laughs> they both can have similar qualities. They're both pretty, like, really high energy. Mm-hmm. They both can be steamrollers. Like, yes. Anne calls Leslie a steamroller. I think that's a, a big quality of theirs, but um, I think their end goals there are different. Anything else to say on Parks and Rec? Nope. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. What do we want to say about that? I think if you had a family, they'd be the, the more strict family of the group. They have more rules to follow. They have more rules being to in follow. A precinct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so not that they don't have fun because they definitely have the Halloween heists and Jake pushes a lot of the boundaries. But I feel yeah. like from top down, like from Holtz and from Terry, you know, their bosses, from their perspective, it is a more strict household. And then you get some of the kids that follow the rules like Amy and then yep. you get, and I'd say like Charles, and, and then you get those that are like pushing against the rules, like Jake and Gina and sometimes Rosa. But yeah, so theirs is one of those, they're trying to find the balance between your your parentship, your leadership being really strict, and your children pushing against those boundaries. Yeah. We, we should acknowledge that the sibling metaphor breaks down when because there's always some sort of romance involved <laughs> so like True. this isn't a perfect metaphor and no by any means but just a fun um, way to talk about them just, just a different way to frame it and think about it yeah i don't really have much to say about brooklyn 99 i guess that's fine then the good place the good place they're definitely the smallest i was gonna say they're family. the smallest family a little more tight-knit because everybody else is a demon <laughs> yeah they're but- the family that goes through the most things trying to tear them apart as a as a family as a found family, but they keep finding each other, which is my favorite thing about it. These epic, grand, cosmic forces are trying to keep them apart, and they cannot. It's it's destiny that they are a found family, which is fantastic. I like that. I like the way you phrased it. They are certainly the most resilient of all the found families. Like cockroaches. Yes. Just keep coming back. <laughs> Team cockroach. <laughs> okay. As we've sort of set the stage, do we want to talk about family systems theory for a moment go deep so. for us casey casey's like i want to apply this theory to our show some family systems theory. and i was like so. okay i will do my best to follow and keep keep up i don't know what that voice was i did sound like a muppet <laughs> a psychiatrist muppet psychiatrist murray bowen uh, developed family systems theory to describe how the the family unit is emotionally connected in various ways with eight main concepts to this theory 
uh, and, and I thought it would be fun to apply the theory and these concepts to these four shows uh, of Michael Shore, all of which, as we mentioned, feature Fountain Family. So, of course, this is a pretty loose structure. We're just kind of having fun with it. Um, nothing too scientific here. And we didn't want to use all eight because some of them don't apply Like there was one that well. talks about like generational yeah, something or other. Yeah, and some societal stuff. And so yes. we just focused on how many did we pick? One, two, three, four, five. Five out of the eight concepts that we're going to talk about and the show notes will have links to these explained in full and i'm going to sort of read a little bit about each one just briefly before we talk about characters within that concept that we think might fit so the first one is differentiation of self and goodtherapy.org describes it as the core concept of bowen's approach refers to the manner in which a person is able to separate thoughts and feelings respond to anxiety and cope with the variables of life while pursuing personal goals. An individual with a high level of differentiation may be better able to maintain individuality while still maintaining emotional contact with the group. A person with a low level of differentiation may experience emotional fusion, feeling what the group feels, due to insufficient interpersonal boundaries between members of the family. So highly differentiated people may be more likely to achieve contentment through their own efforts, while those with a less developed self may seek validation from other people. So sort of in summary differentiation of self if someone has a low differentiation of self they define themselves um, by the group and their what the group is feeling they start to feel whereas someone with high differentiation is able to retain their individuality so who do we feel like applies to that dichotomy of high and low should we start with low sure michael scott yep he's the one that comes to mind immediately <laughs> immediately right? when you think about low differentiation uh the way that his chosen family that his office sees him is of the utmost importance to him he is all about how he is perceived by others and he really wants to be perceived well and so often when he's not or when people are like you're doing things wrong or whatever then he takes it super personally and he can't uh, handle the fallout from that. Well, and he also tries to define the group like as a family before the group is ready to be a found family. That's you true. Know, like um, he's not considering that most of his coworkers don't see the office as a family, even though he tries to. Like we mentioned, I think by the end of the series, they, they grow that direction, but he tries to jumpstart it maybe, maybe a little bit too early. Related to Michael and found family, I like this, the one quote he says, he says, Toby is in HR, which technically, technically means he works for corporate. So he's really not a part of our family. Also, he's divorced. So he's not really not part of his family. <laughs> um, but yeah, that kind of illustrates how he sees the office as um, a family, even when others maybe don't. I think another example is in the merger episode when Stanford is merging with the Scranton branch. And Michael's like going overboard to try to get everyone to get along and to be a family. Um, and when when people dislike what's happening, he doesn't handle it well emotionally. And he can't differentiate from the emotions of others or the group as a whole. I think it's Stanley who says, you know, we don't we don't have to like each other. We just have to work together. And that's like antithetical to how Michael sees it at that point. Yes, Michael can't handle that thought. He's like, no, no, this is a family, a home. Because it's the most important place to him, he wants everyone else to feel the same. Whereas everybody else is working at a nine to five job and then they go home and that's it. And they have their own lives and a lot of them families and 
you know, spouses and significant others where Michael is alone. So most of the time. Yeah. Or unless he's with Jan. (laughs) (laughs) Which is uh, something else. But again, she is part of the Dunder Mifflin group, too. Who else would you argue has high, uh, low differentiation, Casey? That was the big one I was wanting to mention. Did you have other, another one you wanted to? Yes. I think Leslie Nope, actually. Another way in which she and Mike, uh, in which she and Michael are similar. It's like while she approaches things from a slightly more healthy perspective, she again is a steamroller and is very much like, it's, it's very important to her that people do what she wants. <laughs> yeah. Or that she is, that her group is all happy and working well and, and uh, just that that's, just super important to her yeah i agree all right who has high differentiation in the found families i'm gonna say janet okay how so because she has this ability to keep herself separate from everybody else the individuality um of her she's very clear with her boundaries when people call her things she's like not a robot not a girl um she is able to differentiate herself from the the world as a whole and from the other people and i think that shifts a little bit as she becomes more involved with the humans but i think especially at the beginning her sense of self is not at all connected to the other people in the found family a good example from her that i just thought of is when she's already been rebooted multiple times i think and she's like giving couples counseling to jason and tahani and because she's not human she doesn't even realize the emotions that she's having and that, you know, she has that such high differentiation that she's not even realizing that it's happening. Yes. And that same episode uh, is where Janet is telling Michael, she's like, you just need to reboot me. It's fine. And he said, and he's like really anxious about that. He doesn't want to reboot her finally. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, the reason, and she's like, well, why not? And he, he says, the reason is friends. I love that line. <laughs> I love it too. Um, but the idea that Michael feels so attached to her and but at the same time she's like but i'll still be me it'll be fine but michael's like well i have to kind of start our relationship all over again and you're my friend and i don't want to do that to you um so i think she has illustrates that high differentiation there as well i think michael goes from someone who has too high differentiation in that he's so removed from because he's a demon and these are just lowly cockroach humans but he grows to love them and and have a more healthy differentiation with them in terms of just being connected. Yes, I think it's good to point out that when we talk about differentiation, we tend to think that low differentiation is bad and high is good, mm. but it seems like extremes on either end yeah. are not preferable to some middle ground where you can keep your own boundaries and individuality, but also still have emotional connections to the people within your family. While we're on the good place track, I wanted to mention Eleanor Shellstrap because she seems to struggle with this dichotomy of individual versus the group. Like, for example, when she's in Australia. She's got big swings back and forth. Yeah. Like when she's in Australia, she started to lose herself to something bigger than herself with the research study group, but at the expense of her individuality for a time. And then remember, Eleanor starts to freak out when the group's going to break up. Like she can't handle it. And Simone tells her that the the research group is the first group she's felt that Eleanor's felt a part of and that Eleanor is scared of being alone. So that's probably why she's lashing out when the group might break up. Um, it's like her, she's another one where maybe her differentiation was too high and that she was completely out for herself and only herself. 
And it's so extreme that when she's finally part of a group, it swings too far in the other direction. It feels like, you know, to, to a lower differentiation or um, loss of self in favor of the group. Absolutely. She's a good example of that. Also, I think Jason has really high differentiation. He's kind of just happy to be there. Yes. <laughs> he was on my list too. Uh, Jason, Janet. Yeah. I also have um, Donna. Mm, I think yeah. she's very much got her own life and her own thing outside of the family work environment. Yeah, she's a good example. And Dwight Schrute. You think he has high differentiation? I think so. I think he ties some of his worth to the office as a whole. Specifically Michael. Specifically I think he Michael. struggles with differentiation, with differentiation with Michael. Yeah, I, I think that's say. fair. I was just thinking that he has uh, more of his life outside the office. Yeah, he's got his farm and his individuality and he doesn't care about like conforming to the standards that would make him like cool or even mm, yeah. <laughs> or even uh, pleasant to all of his co-workers. Like he doesn't really care what any of those people think about him. Except for Michael, like when he's assistant to dr the director. Any other ones? Um, if we were going to talk about, we haven't mentioned um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I would say that Gina and Rosa both have high differentiation. Especially, I was going to say especially Gina, but Rosa, Rosa definitely does too. But they're definitely individuals and don't tie their whole life up into the police world. I think that's easier for Gina because she's not a cop. I think Rosa takes it to an extreme where she doesn't let anybody know anything about her. And we'll get to that too when we talk about emotional cutoff, I yes. assume. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she's on my list. <laughs> you ready to jump to triangles? Let's do it. Let's talk about it. So number two, the second concept is an emotional triangle, which represents the smallest stable network of human relationship systems. A two-person dyad may exist for a time, but may become an unstable as anxiety is introduced. A three-person system, however, may provide more resources toward managing and reducing overall anxiety within the group. It is common for children to become triangulated within their parents' relationship. So let's talk about some triangles. I so, think this here is talking about generally positive triangles, but these shows have some slightly dysfunctional triangles at times as well. Yes. So, so in general, about? we're talking about kind of, or the way I was thinking it was like parents and child triangle. Mm. I was just thinking of triangles in the group in general. We approached it a little differently mm -hmm. then. Because otherwise, if I think an emotional triangle, to me, it just means like love triangle or like a, <laughs> <laughs> a very, a, like a, it has a romantic sense to it. Right. None versus... of mine are love triangles. That's because so. these shows don't really have love triangles, which I super appreciate. The Good Place does occasionally, actually, but yeah, I'm... never for very long. I mean, there's Pam trying to decide between, you know, Jim and Roy for a long time. And I suppose. I think they exist. <laughs> <laughs> I think love triangles exist too often, but that's for another episode <laughs> where I just rage against the love triangles. It's a good album name. Yes. <laughs> ben name I call it. So the first one I had was Pam, Jim, and Michael, because I feel like often Pam and Jim are parents to Michael. Like trying to talk him off his ledges and trying to keep him grounded in some way. Um, and so I, I feel like they, those three definitely have a triangle, an emotional triangle. I was going to mention Michael, Dwight, and Jim. Because Michael and Dwight seem to have this strong connection. And I do think that Jim kind of grounds that grouping a little bit. But I, I do agree that Pam kind of does too. But I was thinking about when they go pull a prank on the other branch when her name's not Ann in, part, in the office. Um, right. Karen. Karen. 
and <laughs> the three of them go and it's like jim gets pulled into their their craziness antics and yes loses some maturity and respect there <laughs> i think leslie Anne, and ben i do have them yes Ooh, i don't know how would you describe their emotional triangle they're all there's some competition i feel like between ben and Anne for leslie's affection or um there's just some competition it's not even like they're competing for her affection yeah it's that they're competing to prove that they love her as much as she loves them (laughs) because she is so good at just the gifts and the showing of love right the obvious example is when they're fighting over the waffle yes the waffle iron and yeah so this is almost different like they're competing with each other to give enough affection back to leslie instead of trying to compete for her affection yeah because they are clearly as the series goes along the two most important people to leslie who is the main character i also think for a while there it was Anne and leslie and andy like leslie and Anne were very much parental figures to andy trying to help him and shape him and get him to grow up a little bit i want to mention michael and janet and eleanor in the good place that triangle because they seem to be the three that are working the hardest to save everyone if that makes sense i think I think, I think Chidi's fair. working hard. I think everyone's working hard. Well, except for Jason. He doesn't know what's going on. But Chidi is, but he's he's a little more... Well, I'd say Eleanor is more of a leader um, for the group as a whole. and But she needs the, the cosmic powers and understanding that Michael and Janet have. And so I think that pairing is really a really powerful pairing. I like that. I also used Eleanor, Michael, and Jason, if I'm thinking about it in parent-child kind of form Mm. just because they're so often like placating him or like hey bud that's not a good idea yeah a Molotov cocktail won't solve every problem like they're just trying to (laughs) they're just trying to ground him in a lot of ways to help him grow and mature a little bit and so I feel like the two of them and Jason have a very parent-child relationship well and speaking of of Jason there's Jason and Pillboy and Donkey Doug yes. where Jason has to be the mature one because he's grown a lot over the course of of time and yes. Donkey Doug and and Pillboy are still Bermies. yeah they're still um you know have stupid schemes uh last one i have is Brooklyn 99 Captain Holtz and Terry very much work as parents to keep Jake in line. And sometimes to Amy, too, because Amy looks up to both of them as her authority figures, as, like, parental figures. And I think more than once, I know more than once, Jake, you know, makes some comment about Holtz as a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, what, did I say Daddy Holtz? I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, whereas, and I feel like Amy, I feel like it comes up at least once as well. Like, they yeah. both... Uh, definitely view Terry and, and Captain Holtz as a, those parental uh, guiding figures. Yeah, I was going to mention the triangle of Jake and Amy and Holt because, yeah, they're they're competing for, in, his, for him, but in very yes. different ways because Amy's kind of does it by the book and it seems like Jake's just trying to wear Holt down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. You have the child who's like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then you have the other child who's like, Look at this wonderful diorama I accomplished. I followed all the rules. I followed notice all the me. rules. <laughs> yes, notice me for that. 
versus notice me for my antics. Concept three, the family projection process is the transmission of a parent's anxiety, relationship difficulties, and emotional concerns to the child and may contribute to the development of emotional issues and other concerns in the child. So this is kind of similar to the differentiation thing. Um, who, who did you want to talk about? I only have a couple that I specifically wanted to talk about for this yeah, one. Yeah, I have two. Um, so one, I think Michael to Pam. Mm-hmm. I think if he's the boss and he pushes a lot of his anxieties onto Pam and gives her a lot of pressure, like I was mentioning earlier. I wanted to mention Michael Scott as well in terms of his relationship issues and how he has all these, I mean, they are actual issues with relationship stuff. And he expects, especially the women of the office, to help him handle that stuff. Oh, that's a good point. Um, And so he kind of projects that anxiety onto all of them, specifically the women of the office. More than once, he like gathers them up as like his relationship think tank. Yeah. In fact, I think... Maybe it's just because Michael is so unstable in general. I think Michael to anybody in the office is him pushing his own mm. anxieties and yeah. <laughs> and needs onto them. The other one I wanted to mention was the other Michael from The Good Place. And Eleanor. And while well, I was just thinking in general, his, uh, his anxiety in the face of existential dread and how that impacts everyone around him and he kind of needs... In the whole town, yeah. He needs... Chidi and Eleanor to bring him back down to earth. That's why I was saying Eleanor, though, because I feel like she gets the brunt of that when he mm. goes like through his like midlife crisis, where he thinks about his own yeah, that's what mortality. I was talking about. Yeah, yes, and then later when they're creating their own neighborhood, and he just can't be the architect. Like he freaks out so bad that Eleanor introduces herself as the architect. Right. Within this metaphor, he can't be the parent, and so Eleanor has to be the parent. Which she has lots of practice at because that was her whole childhood on Earth. <laughs> True. There's a lot of... Stepping up and taking on a more adult role than she should have to be yeah. given. There's a lot of characters here in Michael Shore's work that, even though they're adults, they're presented sort of as in these roles of, um, there's the the more parent more parental characters but they seem to be needing more help from the younger characters and that those are not younger but um subordinate and they have to you know they have to step in and be the the parent so to speak yes do we want to move on to emotional cutoff emotional cutoff basically what exactly what it sounds like a situation where a person decides to best manage emotional difficulties or other concerns within the family family system by emotionally distancing themselves from other members of the family. I think there are those who refuse to emotionally engage in the first place, yep. like Stanley from The Office, Yep, Stanley. Ron, and April. I think those are all good examples of people who just do not engage in the first place emotionally. You wouldn't say Rosa is in that? And Rosa, I do have Rosa here as well, um, because, yeah, Rosa is very much like emotionally distant um, and she cuts herself off from the rest of the group that way. But you do get moments where you, you like see that she really does care. Also, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, I love how Charles is like her antithesis. Like he shows all his emotions, yeah. and he overshares every personal detail about his life, where Rosa will share nothing. <laughs> so I, I like that those two are like the two extremes. Yeah. Of the, I don't know, what you'd call it emotional cutoff versus emotional outreach (laughs) he he wants all the emotional connection 
with somebody else, especially Jake, but with everybody. Well, and these characters, a lot of these ones, like um, Ron, Stanley, and Rosa, they kind of tend to step back to emotionally cut themselves off. But I also think it's interesting to talk about Eleanor from The Good Place here. She doesn't tend to step back, but lashes out constantly whenever she feels threatened emotionally um, to sort of push the people away so that they um, basically feel forced to leave because then she'll feel justified in emotionally cutting them off. Yes, she was the last one I wanted to talk about there too because when she feels she's getting too attached, it's like she has this innate desire to, I think we all do, to emotionally connect with people. Yeah. Um, But some people like Rosa or Ron, they're very good at shutting off before they get too close. Um, Whereas Eleanor, she gets pulled into these lives around her and then when she feels she's too attached she closes off to protect herself like that same episode that you were talking about at Tahani's party where she starts shutting down and pushing them away and she destroys the cake <laughs> yeah so much like eleanor does that just make you want to reach your fist into a cake no they always do that in movies and i'm like i don't know that if makes I... me sad i like the perfect cube of a piece <laughs> of cake there's something satisfying about that i don't you, want a handful you don't want a handful I want of a cake. cube <laughs> Cube butt, cube butt. I'm just going to make you a bunch of little cube cakes for your next birthday. Please do. Okay. All right. We're on to the last one. I think this is the most fun part. This is the sibling position. Yes. Because there's this old old dude, Alfred Adler. He came up with this idea of of sibling position and and Adlerian birth order characteristics. So we're going to throw some of these characters into the birth order characteristics. Something that defines the oldest is they are, um, in terms of their family situation, they're dethroned by the next child, has to learn to share. Parent expectations are usually very high. They're often given responsibility and expected to set an example. They may become authoritarian or strict and feel power is their right. So, I mean... Some other things that I liked, I guess I have a different list that I looked up. Okay, um, where they also talked about how they tend to be like a know-it-all and bossy, mm-hmm. um, but they're responsible and they're high achievers. I mean, if and th- they're adult pleasers. If this doesn't sound like Dwight to a T, I don't know what does. Yes, he is the he's like the oldest child. He's the one that feels like he's in power. He's been there a long time. He's the he second hates in command when he's dethroned in yeah. any way by Andy or Jim or mm-hmm. yes. But also like this other part where I mentioned they may become authoritarian or or strict. Like Dwight is on the strict side, but then you have like Jeffords, who Sergeant Jeffords, who is you know he's got rules, but there's but you can tell that he cares about the others. Yes, he's not authoritarian at the expense of others. Yeah, like Dwight is willing to be. I think Leslie Nope, I'd put her in as an mm. oldest sibling. Um, she's got that overachiever mentality and the desire to please other people in authority positions like at first it was ron and then it's you know like i love how she can never quite get her act together in front of councilman hauser like it's the (laughs) ongoing joke and then i think holt i would also put him as an oldest i guess i was thinking he was more of a of a parent parental figure but i guess that's true if you're not putting them in both categories there's no rhyme or reason to this it's all metaphor so (laughs) no rules what I think is interesting in Brooklyn Nine-Nine is that Amy feels very much like an oldest child in the terms of the the precinct. Yeah. 
But she's not an actual oldest child in her family um, because we meet her older brother and how she always feels like overshadowed by him and his achievements. Right. Well, one um, one defining feature of the second child is that they can be competitive and um, want to overtake the older, older child. They try to outdo everyone. Their com- like competition can deteriorate into rivalry. So that, that sounds very much like Amy. That's to true, me. too. But I think, I mean, I think first and second, because the second is often trying to be like the first, mm-hmm. they can share a lot of personality traits. Yeah. Like the overachiever and obeys the rules and trying to please the adults. Well, in that second child stuff that I just read too very much describes Tahani and her relationship in trying to compete with which is funny because she's the oldest right she's older but because for whatever reason the family chose to give uh, Camilla more respect it's like Tahani's um, personality is more akin to the second child she's definitely been replaced by yes by Camilla you also see some of this behavior in Andy Bernard when he's trying to compete with Dwight for Michael's behavior, or Michael's favor, and True. being very competitive and um, just trying to make the pace with, with Dwight. Seeing another Andy in Parks and Rec, mm. when he feels like he's trying to compete with Mark for oh. Anne's attention, and he's very much like <laughs> trying to prove he has his act together, but he very much doesn't. <laughs> Although in general, I'd put andy as like a youngest child. yeah very much so yeah or only could be i didn't really do second i guess i did you know oldest middle youngest and only yeah the the alfred adler list that i'm looking at has it also includes only and second and um twins adopted children ghost child you don't want to know what that is <laughs> so now i kind of do <laughs> okay I didn't feel like it had really applied, but maybe you can think of it. It says, child born after the death of the first child may have a ghost, in quotations, a ghost in front of him. Mm. Mother may become overprotective. Interesting. Yeah. That's like when you do old family history work Mm -hmm. and they'll have like multiple kids named Margaret because like the first Margaret died. So then you like name the next one Margaret too. And it's like, that feels like a lot to live up to. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I don't know if... (laughs) That really applies to our shows, but very fascinating, the psychology of it. Yeah. So next we have the middle child who is sandwiched in, may feel squeezed out of a, out of a position of privilege and significance, may be even tempered, uh, take, it or leave it, take it or leave it attitude, may have trouble finding a place. See, I feel like all of the attributes on your list are like the negative attributes for each one, whereas I feel like my list has like... Go for positive it. What, attributes. What is yours? What does your list say? I didn't see your list. So. Because this one, uh, mine's from BetterHelp.com, mm-hmm. and it's talking about. And, it, and like I looked it up because it was the Adler, and they were talking about the Adler thing. Yeah. Anyway, so they mentioned middle children as being more flexible, easygoing, peacemakers, social, um, independent. They can be secretive. May feel life is unfair. They're strong negotiators and are generous. See, I felt like mine had a good mix. It said maybe even ta- even tempered. Take it or leave it attitude. Those aren't bad. I suppose. But, but I, as, yeah. a, as a middle child myself, I feel like peacemaker. Oh, same. Like <laughs> I don't do well with confrontation. Uh-uh. So I am a middle child for sure. Yeah. And occasionally being secretive. I definitely remember being secretive as a mm-hmm. kid. Yep. Um, and like easygoing. I feel like those all fit me pretty well. Yeah. Who in the works of Michael Shore do you feel like fits the middle child syndrome? I feel like Anne from Parks and Rec. She's a, a peacemaker. She's the negotiator often between 
whatever Leslie and somebody else is going through. She doesn't ever quite fit. Like when she's trying to make corn husk dolls and yes. other various things she can't do. Yeah, she's not quite part of the office yeah. family, but um, Leslie's kind of pulling her in anyway. Jerry, in terms of not really fitting in, he's True. kind of a middle child in that way. Um, or even like an adopted child. <laughs> the redheaded stepchild. That's not on the Adlerian list that I have, but... <laughs> Um, making up our own things now but toby kind of too yes not really having a place a little bit of an outsider he does try to keep the peace um like with uh you know what's the word conflict resolution type stuff right i think Boyle a little bit too from book of the nine nine being kind of sandwiched between jake and amy in yes. a lot of ways he's very much a peacemaker people pleaser so i'm trying to think if anybody on would you put anybody in the good place there Maybe None um, of them really seem to fit to me. If you look at some of the uh, the outsiders, like, I don't know, Mindy doesn't care enough. I don't know if I'd put her in anything. She, I mean, I'd put her more like only child. She's in the medium place. Um, so. And also the, uh, um, oh, what is she, what is, um, I can't think of his name. What does Janet name her boyfriend, Rebound? Jason? No. She, uh, no, because that's, 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 that's what name. I was good. Isn't his real name yeah. Jason? Matsukas, uh, Eric. And Derek, there yeah. it is. Yeah. I feel like he... He has a very take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Yes. <laughs> okay, the youngest child has many mothers and fathers, meaning like the older siblings are like met mothers and fathers. Mm -hmm. um, the older children try to educate them, wants to be, sometimes wants to be bigger than the others, may have huge plans that never work out, can stay the baby. Okay, I've got some different adjectives on my list here too. Okay. I think they fit similarly, yeah, yeah. but uh, are self-centered, um, competitive, bored easily, likes to be pampered, has a sense of humor, um, can be financially irresponsible, a risk taker. Jason Mendoza, to a T, is the youngest child. Yes. Here's where my theory about The Office comes in and why it's so dysfunctional. Yeah. I think they have a huge group of youngest children and not as many older and middle children. Interesting. Like, I think Andy um, could fit in this group. I think Ryan. Ryan definitely fits Definitely this, fits. Yeah. I think Jim is often a youngest where he's all about, like, he's bored, so he's acting out. He's um, looking for that attention that way. I think Michael is often a youngest <laughs> yeah. in his personality. Like, a look at me, give me attention. Um, wants people to, to do the hard work for him. Did I mention Andy and... Um, I just really feel like a fair majority of the main characters in The Office are this kind of personality. I could see that. And I think that's what makes them so dysfunctional is because they don't have the structure of the other kinds, you know, an oldest and a middle to hold them together, <laughs> to keep them moving forward in any kind of a uh, productive manner. I like it. So that's my theory on why they're so dysfunctional. In Parks and Rec... April and Andy are both very much the youngest children. Yes. Like they need Ben to educate them. <laughs> Which is why, I mean, their marriage improves, I think. But yes, especially there at the beginning. I don't know what they would have done without Ben. <laughs> uh, Jake Peralta is a very youngest child in a lot of ways. Yep. As well. I have him on my list as well. Um, I think who else? Tom. Um, I think Tom Haverford's a, a youngest. He's got these big ideas. They don't always work out. He's financially irresponsible. Yeah. As Anne says, when she dated him, that was her debt phase. <laughs> well, that's all I have. 
Anything else you wanted to say about found family and these I shows? did want to talk about only children, Casey. Oh, okay. I just have two to mention, which is funny because they're both actually only children in this show. Um, so only children, it says that they are close to parents. They have good self-control. Um, they can be mature and dependable, but they can also be demanding or unforgiving, um, private or sensitive. So I feel like Cheaty fits in there. Like he is close to his parents and he um, is mature in a lot of ways, but then he's also very demanding and unforgiving of himself, which is interesting. Uh, instead of it being outward, it's definitely inward uh, demanding that he has. Meanwhile, I feel like Eleanor, who is also an only child on the show, and maybe it's because her parents were so dysfunctional that she doesn't really fit the only child mold, even though she is one, actually. Like, she doesn't really have self-control. She is a leader, and she is mature in the sense that she can jump in and take care of things when she needs to. She's definitely not close to her parents, although she does become more close to her mom later. But she's also not very dependable. I don't know, maybe she does fit some of these because she can be pretty demanding and unforgiving as well. I thought both of those were interesting. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see the couples that, like Andy and April, who end up together and they're both definitely youngest personalities. And then you've got like Chidi and Eleanor who end up together and they're both only children. Yeah, that's true. So, just interesting. Neato. Well, this episode's going to end up being shorter than any of our recent episodes so i'm gonna blame that on valerie is that okay my fuzzy brain more like your hips <laughs> that too sitting for long <laughs> periods of time we for those who don't understand being pregnant is super uncomfortable and you need to move and so we can't really podcast for as long of a time so yeah that's fair which brings us to wrapping it up yeah and we wanted to mention that so this episode comes out on the 12th which is fun. Um, I will still be pregnant at that time, sadly. Yeah. But also good. I'm not supposed to have the baby till April. So. <laughs> yeah. So since Valerie's having a baby in April, we're going to take a little bit of time off from the podcast, but we'll we have, still have some really fun things lined up. Yes. So first of all, we've got, so our next main episode that comes out on the 26th, we'll have Casey and Eni yes from sincerely us i'm so excited we're going to talk about stop motion and fantastic mr fox and i am ecstatic so there's your homework go watch fantastic mr fox yes and then we have some other b and e hosts who have uh, yes b wb <laughs> we <laughs> telling you guys <laughs> we have some other wb and e hosts who are um, have graciously accepted our invitation to come on to and take over our show. So yeah. we're going to have a couple of takeovers in April, which yeah. would be super so, fun. So stay tuned for those. We are very excited for those. But so that you're not missing us, our Swashbuckler patrons, just $7 a month. You guys should all just jump up to Swashbuckler patrons so you don't miss us because we have pre-recorded all of our bonus beep episodes all the way through April. Yeah, so just in case you're missing us um, and missing our voices, you can become a swashbuckler and hear us in all our glory. Those are ready. I've yeah. already got them scheduled and everything. Whoa, we're so ahead. <laughs> That's my uh, m my version of nesting, apparently. <laughs> I got the podcast bonus beeps all laid out and ready to go. <laughs> but we will still be hanging out on Discord, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, with the new baby and everything i'll be chilling around a lot so if you want to chat with us there come be a patron of hello from elsewhere by going to patreon.com slash hello from elsewhere you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at elsewhere underscore pod 
Our cover art is by Vaishan Brandon. You can find his graphics on Instagram at graphite.vmb. Hello from Elsewhere is a proud member of WBNE. Visit WBNE.org for more fabulous podcasts like Late to the Party. This is an urgent message. If you or a loved one have been suffering from mild hallucinations, encountering what looked like a, a horde of zombies, lack of fine motor function, there was no parking, and I pulled up on the lawn and broke a sprinkler head. The inability to sit for long periods of time. Did you just break the chair? Jordan is holding a chair arm up. Roll to sit. Oh, did not do so good. Trouble using your tools. Are you going to take another smashy smash? I sure am. 13 probably doesn't hit. Does not hit. Sorry about the dice, Scott. <laughs> or existential crises. And I'm playing Sunny Days, a high elf cleric, a half elf cleric, a quarter elf cleric, a mostly human cleric, a mostly human, but with a smidgen of elf cleric. You may be entitled to podcasts. Ask your doctor about Late to the Party, a Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition actual play podcast for the whole family. Available every other Monday on WBNE.org or wherever podcasts are sold. Well, it's a lunch lunch break in the writer's room. And they're throwing papers at us, so. Are we that bad at our jobs? I don't know. We're just sitting here. But I think they got got stressed about all the things they got to write. And so they're throwing stuff at our head (laughs) in the writer's room. That's what they do in writer's room? That's what I picture writer's rooms as like. They're just like throwing throwing papers papers at each other all the time? I think so, yeah. I feel like. I think they write down an idea. I feel like they're using their laptops all the time. Nobody actually has paper in the writer's room anymore. That sounds tragic. I mean, more efficient, I'm sure, but sounds tragic. Save the trees, Casey. Well, this writer's room, there's lots of paper. Hence me being hit in the head with paper. Your 1980s writing room here. Yep, for cheers. (laughs) It's a found family, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, on that note, happy beeps. Happy beeps.